Gather round, friends, because we're talking about sex right now. And if that makes you reach for the dial, let's think a little bit about that reaction. What makes us uncomfortable when it comes to talking about sex or sex outside of specific norms or contexts? Australians may pride ourselves on being easygoing, but morally, we might still be a bit prudish. Author Paul Dalgano was inspired to explore this idea when prudishness was brought to bear on his own relationships, and his new book is called Prudish Nation. Paul, welcome to Life Matters. Hi, Hilary. Thanks for having me. It is a pleasure. I wonder, too, if you're listening, do you struggle to talk about sex in particular situations or or generally? Where did that come from for you? And do you think that as a country, we are prudish? What do you think, Paul? Is there a bit of double think on the surface where all she'll be apples, but under underneath it's a bit like ew? I, I think um, prudishness, I think, is its own kind of thing. But I think um, there is definitely a bit of a disconnect between how we like to see ourselves in Australia, how Australia likes to see itself as laid back, everything's going to be all right. And uh, what might be a slightly more kind of, um, I guess, kind of uptight, a very kind of Anglo inheritance. I'm from the UK, as people can probably tell. Um, And so I certainly bring with myself that baggage of the, you know, the carry on era of films and people being titillated, but also a little bit scandalised by sex. So I, I, I think... Both things happen in Australia, a laid back view, but also, yeah, maybe not as laid back as we'd like to think. I found the book fascinating because you talk about that kind of smutty, naughty UK inheritance around sex. But one of the people you spoke to said, I kind of like that. I like the naughtiness of sex. So you also write that, you know, prudishness is a bit in the eye of the beholder. It can be about context. I mean, do you have a working definition in the book about when something is prudish and when it's just perhaps people feeling a bit private about matters of the bedroom? Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Hilary. I mean, I think we're all prudish um, in the sense of, you know, if you if you get on the tram and there are people making out or, you know, having sex, um, other than those people having sex, everyone else is probably going to be scandalised and very upset by that, myself included. So um, I, I think that, that kind of sense, that reaction to things um, is, as you said, in the eye of the beholder. Um, but the working definition I've kind of gone for in the book is more um, prudishness itself suggests a bit of an evangelical um, approach to the matter. So, so not only having those feelings, which are, of course, natural if you're having them, but uh, trying to police other people and, and kind of lay down the law on what's proper and what's right and what, what's allowed and what shouldn't be allowed. Well, you talk a little bit about the double standards, too, that we've inherited. I mean, there, there were differences between what was seen as acceptable for men and women, but also the upper classes and the lower classes. How does that play out here and now in Australia? Um, I, I think um, the, the same thing probably exists. You know, if you're um, in very kind of rough shorthand, if you're rich, you get away with almost murder. I mean, um, if you're rich, you're, um, you, you might have a, a lover or a mistress, to use an old fashioned term, um, or whatever the male equivalent is. I think that's just lover. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if you're anything uh, below that financially, you're having an affair, which comes with its own kind of baggage and judgment and all the rest of it. So, um, I, I, th- I think we're a mix of things. I mean, uh, obviously, there are lots of generations coexisting, and uh, people like me who were born in the 70s are dragging along their own particular baggage. People that are born um, more recently have different baggage, and we're all we're all in the same luggage area, if you like, um, sorting through all that stuff. Yes, so I do love how the book says, look, there's a lot of nuance going on here, and as Australians, we are not any one thing all at the same time. We're a lot of different things. We're, we're a bit racist, we're aspirationally not racist you know, and, and, and other other aspects to our identity. Um, we're speaking with Paul Dalgano, who's written this book 
uh, about whether or not we are a prudish nation. It's called prudish nation. Um, as a polyamorous person, Paul, you've had to kind of deal with the attitudes and judgments that might be circulating more broadly in our culture. What's been your experience of what is reflected back at you when it becomes clear that this is how you live your life? Well, um, as I say in the book, um, Hillary, um, and it's one of the reasons for writing it, um, you know, I'm, I'm a straight-ish, um, white, middle-aged guy, so by definition, I, I'm kind of the opposite of queer. I'm the, I'm the one walking through life with a privilege that doesn't notice all these other judgments are going on normally. Um, and um, this experience for me, releasing a book about polyamory, but also coming out about being in a polyamorous kind of situation, was my very first, um, I have to say, tiny glimpse by comparison to, to other people of suddenly um, this being a, a point of fascination. So um, around the book, coming out, about nine out of every 10 questions I was asked uh, ended up being about my personal life, not the novel, which was very much fiction. So there'd be things like, um, you know, can you walk us, uh, well-meaning questions, I guess, but can you walk us through a typical day in the life of a polyamorous person? And, and like I love this, your response in the book. Well, <laughs> yeah, like this situation now, you're kind of live on air or being recorded for a podcast. So it's a bit like being in a job interview when they throw a real curveball at you. You're like, I'm not actually sure. And it, it's only afterwards that you think, well, I'm sure everybody's day is different, the same as not, uh, monogamous people or whatever. So, yeah, I, I would say, um, while well, in no way kind of comparable to the kind of things that uh, people on the LGBTQIA plus spectrum are going through, it was certainly my first tiny peek into being uh, othered, you know, as I said, as the, the kind of uh, stereotypical white guy. So, yeah, that, that kind of... Well, I'm interested because uh, I was wondering if those inquiries were coming from, do you think, a well-meaning place or were they kind of layered with judgment about how you choose to kind of run your family and, and your sexual life? Which, you know, when you say I'm poly, that immediately for some people foregrounds a sexual side of things. How do people cope with that? Yeah, it's interesting you say that because actually, you know, lesbian and gay also foreground a sexual side of things. And as lots of people say in the book, and as I would kind of agree with myself, it, it's kind of not your fault that that label is what it is, that it foregrounds something about your sexuality. So, um, you know, most of our time isn't even uh, as sexualized beings. Most of our time's, you know, going about our day and paying bills and doing whatever else we need to do. So um, in, a, in a way, I think it's a bit unfair that um, it's kind of foregrounding, you, you know, um, a kind of heterosexual person doesn't need to walk around saying, I'm heterosexual, I'm attracted to people of the opposite sex, for, for example. So um, in terms of the labels, um, they, they kind of almost come with their own uh, invitation to judgment, if you like. Um, in terms of whether people, I felt people were judgmental of me, um, I think particularly because I have kids, I think it opens up a whole new can of worms. Um, and in discussion with um, a gay polyamorous person in the book, Simon Copland, a writer, academic, his view was that he reckoned I'd be getting a lot more judgment because I had kids, because it's, it's, it's the sacred thing. It's the nuclear family. Uh, and if you start messing around with that, um, you do start to sense a bit more judgment about, you know, you're being unfair to your kids, um, which leads, uh, it's, it's a, bit of a, a bit of a slide from there to, um, are, are you actually a good parent, you know? And no, nobody says that directly because it would be um, kind of wild and obscene to say that, but you, you start feeling that kind of feeling. Well, I guess the subtext of that 
is, isn't it, that you should actually instead be living a lie and be having secrecy and not what you want in your intimate relationships uh, in order to protect the kids and that it's not okay to want things like that. Yeah, and I I guess that's um, what's commonly understood to be our Victorian inheritance, you know, the difference between uh, keeping up appearances, basically. So the majority of people, whenever these surveys are done, admit uh, to having affairs, uh, so extramarital, extra-relationship affairs. I think you said uh, 70% in the book. Yeah, and I think, you know, it probably varies because who's going to actually self-report that they are having an affair? So if 70% are saying they do, maybe it's even higher, I don't know. But um, but yeah, I, I think um, the, the, the kind of scandal, if you like, is being open about the fact. And even though you say everything's consensual and everybody knows each other and you know, everybody's doing their best to look out for the other one's feelings. It still comes with a kind of, why are you cheating on society, if you like? Why are you doing this brazen thing? It it makes us feel uncomfortable. Brazen, that's a great word. That's a very (laughs) telling word when you drill down into why people feel that. I guess, uh, why why do you think that urge exists in Australia or elsewhere to kind of scrutinise and judge the way other people, you know, conduct their love lives when it doesn't actually affect us personally? Um, so, yeah, that's that's the million dollar question. Um, I'm not entirely sure. If, if I'm if I'm honest, I'm not sure. Other than you know, I think we are all walking through life, whether we're just walking down the street comparing our shoes to the next person's shoes, and um, we're. Kind you of think com- there's some jealousy? People saying, "I want those shoes," and and I want two pairs of shoes I, at the same time. I feel that sometimes. Yeah, when I see people's shoes or yeah, a cool jacket or something. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think. We kind of want to have confirmation that we're not doing things wrong or that we're living a proper kind of life. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to look at people around us. So, um, you know, it's a very, there's nothing new about this, but we all know the difference between um, stereotypically a a straight man who has lots of affairs, you know, is standing ovation from a lot of people, whereas a woman who has lots of affairs, you know, traditionally has been pilloried for that and, and treated as kind of less than. So, Do you think that's changing? I mean, we've got streaming TV shows called How to Build a Sex Room. You know, there, there seems to be certainly in some parts of Australian culture a lot more discussion, a lot more free and open discussion and acceptance that people can want all different kinds of things. Yeah, I hope, I hope it's changing. And I think, yeah, I think it probably is. Um, the, these things happen slowly but surely, yeah, pe- people are... Um, you, you know, the, the kind of main thinking behind the book, really, by the time I got to the end of it was, you, you know, it's not kind of, I, I don't think anybody needs to make a case for diversity saying, come on, everybody, you know, let, let's accept this brand new thing. It's just, it's more taking the scales off of our eyes. Diversity in desire and partner choice, etc. It's It's always existed. Um, and yes, we might have new language for that now, and that might be a little bit confronting for certain people. But really, it's only it's a taxonomy for stuff that's always been there. There's always been human diversity, and there always will be. Well, there's a fascinating uh, series of sections in the book about labels and the pros and cons of particular labels. But I guess what struck me most about this book, Paul Dalgano, is that it, it centres around how much we need to speak about things. Why is it important to be able to speak openly and freely about these things, in your view, as opposed to people saying, "Look, it's fine if you do what you do, but don't don't put it in my face." Yeah, so so when I grew up, um, the, there was a lot of the, this in the north of Scotland. I'm going to guess it's the same in, let's say, regional Australia. That might be comparable. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And there was a lot of homophobia around, but I, I don't think anybody would have known it was what well, some people would have, but a lot of people wouldn't have thought of it as homophobia at the time. They would have just thought, look at that funny man uh, who looks a bit like a woman or is a bit effeminate. Yeah, it was and a normalised set of it, it was, ridicule. It was just normalised, right? And, and the only reason that has changed is through the advocacy of very many people who have kind of fought that battle to get you know, language and terminology and understanding in front of people. So I think, you know, the, the worry isn't that people are walking around being bigoted and uh, accidentally doing harm to people. The worry is really just general ignorance. So if, if you're ignorant of things, if you actually don't understand some basic things about life, it's just a couple of steps from there to bigotry. And then if you have somebody that's already bigoted, they're pushed one step further along to... Uh, you know, violence, whether that's violence in action or violence in words. So really, um, I just think the, the kind of safest thing for everyone is to uh, be more fluent in terms of their understanding and the kinds of perspectives they're exposed to. Paul, tell us before we go about a, a conversation you had with your son about pronouns. Yeah, so... Um, my son has a number of, uh, he, he's, he was 13 at the time of, of that being written in year seven, and uh, he has a number of friends who have they, them pronouns, um, you know, it's inner city Melbourne, so it's a largely kind of tolerant part of the city. And um, he said to me, you've never asked me what my pronouns are. And so I said, well, okay, mate, sorry, what, what are your pronouns? And he said, it. Um, and my, my reaction was just to laugh because I assumed he was joking. And I, I still, even though I write in the book that I haven't asked him yet, still in real life I haven't asked him yet what, how much of a joke that was. But he said, you know, why are you laughing? Don't you think that would be hurtful for me that you would laugh? And I said, oh, oh mate, no, if you want to be called it, I can call you it. Um, and it just made me realise that, you know, that this was me at the end of writing this book and thinking about this issue for a very long time. And as soon as my son told me a term, because I hadn't heard that term before, and even though he might have just been joking, my immediate reaction was to essentially laugh at him or laugh with him. So, yeah, it, was, it, it opened my eyes to the fact that, you know, you, you kind of have to just try and really listen to what people are saying and what the intention is behind it and not let your body do that thing that your body likes to do, which is rush to judgment and opinion on stuff. Yeah, I was fascinated to learn that in the Victorian area, children of either gender were called it until they were about two or three. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> uh, Paul Dalgano is the author of a new book called Prudish Nation, Life, Love and Libido. It is a fascinating, thought-provoking read. Paul, thanks for sharing it with us today. Oh, thank you, Hilary. Cheers. It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.